0: Court, now
1: cool. Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of Jason Donald Hay against His Majesty the King, for the appellant, Jason Donald Hay, Mr. Balfour, Q.H. Durr, Casey, James F. McLeod, McLeod, and David A.S. Roper. For the respondent, His Majesty the King, Christine Rideout, Casey, uh, Mr. Durr. I'd like to mention that there is a publication ban in this matter pursuant to section 486.4, 278.95, 276, 278.933 and 278.94 of the criminal code.
0: Thank you Chief Justice. This case is about honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. It goes to the mens rea of sexual assault. In this particular case, the trial judge gave a very thorough decision with an understanding of the law that was applauded by the Court of Appeal. She made no legal errors in her recitation and understanding of the law. But the Court of Appeal, in my respectful submission, overstepped their review powers. And in terms of the mistaken belief defense, and I say that in its abbreviated form, of course I mean the, the longer version of honest but mistaken belief and communicated consent. But the Alberta Court of Appeal took an approach to the mistaken belief defense that was so narrow in essence requiring consent evidence of consent to the sexual act which would which would negate the existence of the mistaken belief defense if in fact that is what's required evidence of consent then the mistaken belief defense could never succeed and as we know this defense exists because the court has said on many times that it protects against someone being someone who is morally innocent from being convicted, and it's a defense that is interesting, in that, as uh, Justice Moldaver said in Barton, that it's a defense that really is based on two things, and he was uh, quoting, uh, Madam Justice Larue Dubay in an earlier decision but he said that the principal considerations are the complainant's actual communicative behavior, and here in this case, we're talking about sounds, words, and actions. And the second principal consideration was the totality of admissible and relevant evidence that explains how the accused perceived the behavior to communicate consent. So it's a focus on the accused perception of the evidence. And we have in this case a situation where the trial judge went through a number of facts and she lists them in her paragraph 109, set out a number of fact findings. She then goes further and looks at a number of factors that she said, five different factors, that she would analyze those facts in, and in the end, came to a conclusion that the defense uh, existed. So the trial judge started her decision by first of all finding that Mr. Hayes' evidence was credible. So she accepted his version of what occurred. She then focused on, as she should have, the mens rea element of the offense. And she properly noted that the mens rea element is for her to consider whether the accused was reckless or willfully blind in terms of his intention. In Yuenchuk, 1999, at paragraph 63, this Honorable Court, Justice Major for the Court, said that it's for the trier of fact to determine, the trier of fact to determine whether the evidence raises a reasonable doubt about the accused person's state of mind. And here, the trial judge had the very distinct advantage of seeing and hearing the witnesses. And she is owed a certain amount of deference because of her position as the trial judge and being to hear and see the witnesses. So she made a number of fact findings and for instance, in relation to reasonable steps, um, this court has said that the reasonable steps are questions or is a question of fact for the trial judge.
2: The, the, yeah. the Court of Appeal uh, set out in bullet points in paragraph 26 each of the points relied on by the trial judgment and then sub- subsequently went through, uh, you know, italicizing each of the points and then saying why each of them did not provide a basis for an error of reality. Could you tell us which of the italicized portions you say was in error? Yes.
0: Excuse me while I just get to that page. <clears throat> In my respectful submission, uh, Justice, all of them were an error by the uh, Court of Appeal. If we start at the first one, where they said that the communication, or the trial judge's finding was the communication was by verbal and nonverbal cues. The Court of Appeal said that's ambiguous and of no effect on the requirement for c- contemporaneous consent for each act, but the error of the Court of Appeal here was that, <clears throat> excuse me, the question that we look for is how consent was communicated. How? Mm-hmm. Madam Justice Carak-Stanis said that in Goldfinch, that the how is important. Well, the trial judge's fact finding was that the communication was both verbal and nonverbal. So that would clearly go to the how communication, uh, consent was communicated. The Court of Appeal on this point as well also also said that the evidence does nothing to support the legal requirement that consent must be obtained contemporaneously with each sexual assault. The issue in this consent, I'm sorry, the issue in this case though wasn't consent, In fact, there wasn't consent. The issue was whether Mr. Hay had the mistaken belief and what facts contributed to that belief. In other words, his perception. The second uh, comment made by the Court of Appeal was that Mr. Hay believed the complainant would enjoy anal intercourse because she reacted positively to digital anal penetration which he gathered from her body movements and her comment that she loved it when Mr. Hay played with her, quote, ass. So the Court of Appeal says there's two problems with that. They say that Mr. Hay was assuming that the complainant would consent because she had enjoyed digital anal penetration. And the second problem the Court of Appeal says is that Anal intercourse is not a natural extension of the digital penetration.
3: Can I ask you this? Yes. Um, Mr. Dare, doesn't this all rest on the assumption that it was reasonable that if he believed he had consent for digital penetration, that was not very different from anal intercourse. Doesn't the whole thing rest on that, because all of these factors go to his honest belief that they weren't very different, and so if she was expressing pleasure consent to that, then the next step was really just just, just a natural, very, very, um, not very different progression. If you don't accept that, if you accept that they're not the same sexual activity, that one is more invasive than the other. What, what are you relying on for communicated consent for that activity?
0: Well, there wouldn't be any. There wouldn't. There, there would not. Yeah. Yes.
3: So, essentially, at the end of the day, doesn't it come down to whether we accept that a reasonable belief in communicated consent for digital penetration would satisfy the defense for anal intercourse.
0: Well, it's, it's not as narrow as that, um, Justice. Well, it doesn't
3: have to be, but in this case, doesn't everything disappear if you reject that proposition as a matter of law?
0: Well, there was more to it than just um, the natural progression. There were a number of uh, factors that the trial judge looked at to say, to come to the conclusion how his belief was formed. So.
3: But the belief about what? That's my point. The belief in communicated consent for he. digital, he believed was somehow enough for a completely different sexual activity. If we, if we don't accept that, then I understand the argument, but if we, if, we, if, we, if, we, if we agree with the Court of Appeal that it is a different sexual activity, that it is more invasive and that it requires some steps and indication of communicated consent to that activity, then doesn't all the rest of the, uh, all of those factors in italics, aren't they just beside the point? Uh,
0: Well, I would very respectfully disagree for this reason that the defense of mistaken belief is exactly that the the man was mistaken
3: nobody Uh, doubts that part of it what he honestly believed the question is whether it was reasonable whether there were reasonable steps and whether the the reasonable steps in communicated consent sorry to interrupt you (laughs) i won't again
0: (laughs) no no Um, and i i would respectfully submit the answer lies in the fact that there doesn't need to be explicit consent no for every sexual act. That's correct. So it allows room for an accused person to be mistaken about what this next step is. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: So if we don't require explicit consent, then an accused person would be allowed then to gather in their mind the number of facts that that the trial judge said went under reasonable facts, and make this make the decision as as to what well to assume (laughs) i'm sorry no no no, no, not to assume but but there is but if if we don't require explicit consent if that is not required agreed then there's a person would in their mind uh, do a number of things assumptions are one of them that, that anytime someone doesn't act If if there isn't explicit consent, then that person has to formulate in his or her mind what what signals they are getting from the other person, the communicated consent. So there is an element of assumption, or there may be things that are implied by other people, and I know those are words that, that have been frowned upon, but for a person to actually do what Mr what any I suppose any person would do is they have to calculate in their mind they have to gather together a number of facts things that have been happening in this case sounds words actions motions and and they have to be allowed some leeway because if, if it's not.
3: I guess, Mr. Dur, I, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but it's gotta be consent in relation to what? Everything you're saying is in relation to his views on digital penetration and then his assumption that consent to that would be sufficient consent to anal intercourse. That's the difficulty here. It's not how you determine consent you're allowed to, of course, you're allowed to rely on nonverbal cues as well, but there has to be some kind of communicated consent to that specific sexual activity when it is of a different nature. We're not saying to every single act, but when it is of a different order, when it is more invasive. And I broke my promise.
0: No, no the. Uh, <laughs> but I, the answer uh, for me may lie in the fact that what Mr. Hayes' belief was, it was that the, the complainant's anal region was an erogenous zone for her. Mm-hmm. And then he says, there isn't that big a difference in his mind between his finger and his penis. The trial judge said, I, I, I don't have any empirical study to tell me exactly what the difference is. Obviously, she notes they're different and physically different. Generally speaking, she says that a penis would be larger than a finger. But when Mr. Hay says it's an erogenous zone for her and my finger and my penis are not that different, the trial judge says I can't say that he's wrong about that. In his belief. And, and it takes me to.
4: Can I take you somewhere else, Mr. Ditter? Um, and, and that is this what communicated consent is, because one of the interesting things that arises from the, the, the facts here in the 276 is I, I'm just struck by the idea that. It cannot be that the case, law that focuses on communicated consent is opening the door to uh, a full inquiry as to how you may have communicated consent in the past, right, because that's really what the 276 was here, and uh, how, uh, how, what's your response to that? Because every time there's an issue then of mistaken belief and communicated consent, um, it it would seem to me that it's just open to say, well, you know, on these prior occasions, I'm not saying you have a propensity to consent. I'm saying I've seen how you've consented or I think you've consented in the past and I'm I'm using this on the communication aspect and not on the consent.
0: Well, I would rely on what Uh, Justice Moldaver said in Barton at paragraph 93 where he said, um, if I may read it it's short, for example, in some cases, prior sexual activities may establish legitimate expectations about how consent is communicated between the parties, thereby shaping the accused perception, that word perception again, of communicated consent to the sexual activity in question at the time it occurred. So Justice Moldaver, for this court in barton is saying well the person can go back in time in their mind to look at prior sexual activities and that may set up legitimate expectations for his perception so the it's it's not just that it's not as simple as saying she agreed at one point to something therefore the complainant will agree again it's it's not that simple what we're what at least as justice maldives is saying is that it's about the well. it's important that we consider the accused perception and his perception can he can make legit he can have legitimate expectations from prior sexual activity and i would i would say that what makes this all so important and in this case one thing that that shines through is that the trial judge did not believe that this man was morally culpable she didn't believe that she she said her her, her concluding remarks for her judgment She said at paragraph 121, at the end of what is a complex analysis, the question is fairly simple. Did Mr. Hay intend to sexually assault the complainant? And, I mean, that, that is the very question that had to be answered. And she said he did not have the intent. He did not have the mens rea.
4: But what about the recklessness um, aspect of the intent? And, um, you know, it it seems that, of course, it's in his mind, but he's um, ad- saying that he's adva- advancing his, his words, or he's advancing um, this. But uh, there's no a priori notion of what that advancement might be. And so doesn't... Um, Isn't it become what the Court of Appeal says? It's an error of law for him to think he can advance from one act to another without having consent to the sexual activity in question.
0: And and where I would disagree with that suggestion, respectfully disagree, is that that line of reasoning by the Court of Appeal requires specific consent then to the act. So in other words, Again, it, it nullifies mistaken belief. They're saying you need consent for this act. Well, that, you, that's the essence of their decision. You need to have consent, but that's not the I defense. Think, uh, but
4: I think that is the law, and and where we get into the recklessness is that he proceeds without knowing whether he has uh, actual uh, consent to different sexual activity he decides that it's okay to proceed because he's advancing and for for whatever reason but why isn't that an error of law
0: well it's um, it's not an error of law because it's just not this arbitrary decision by him um, I'm going to do this it's he um, and I I rely on what the trial judge set out for her facts that she found there were a number of things a number of things that were going on in his mind not the least of which about two minutes prior uh, when he was um, digitally digitally penetrating her anus that she made the expression I love it when you play with my ass so that that's something that was freshly in his mind when the act of anal penetration took place. That, that, and that's not the only factor. There are a number of things that had gone on as the trial judge set out. And, and again, I go to the fact that an accused is entitled to be wrong about consent with the mistaken belief. Yes,
5: but, I mean, there is a certain complexity to the law in this area. And I wonder if perhaps the key point is he, where there is a, a, an honest but mistaken belief, um, that is a defense. But that honest and mistaken belief must have a reasonable grounding. It can't simply be um, a, a, a projection of desire or uh, some fantasy or some notion that's detached. From the circumstances, there must be, it must be grounded in, in, in something which is legally recognized as, as, as an adequate basis or a reasonable basis for that mistaken belief. So um, it isn't that it, it's either uh, you have to have consent for everything or that it doesn't matter whether there was actual consent. I thought I had it it isn't either of those it's in fact somewhere in between it's that not only did i have a, a, a mistaken belief but it was reasonably grounded and that it it seems to me is the defence and where this one maybe this is the uh, where it the uh, the position your position encounters some difficulty
0: well I, I agree with you um in what you talk about that there needs to be what you suggest there needs to be a reasonable grounding that I I believe is the reasonable steps requirement that accompanies the the mistaken belief defense
6: but can't we go back to your right to your right can't we go back to you quoted to us uh, paragraph 93 of Barden, and I'm just gonna read it most significantly in seeking to rely on the complainants prior sexual activities in support of a defense of honest but mistaken belief and communicated consent, the accused must be able to explain how and why that evidence informed his honest but mistaken belief that, and this is the kicker, she communicated consent to the sexual activity in question at the time it occurred. And that's what's lacking here, according to what was found by the uh, Court of Appeal, correct?
0: Well, that's certainly what the Court of Appeal said was lacking. But the court of... uh, Not what the trial judge found. But do you disagree with that? And why? Do I disagree with the comment of the court? So
6: you quote to us paragraph 93 to support your position. Yes. But it's not clear to me uh, where the evidence is that she communicated consent to that specific sexual activity. Not the digital penetration, but the penile
0: um, penetration. Well, see, that's the there was no talk about penile anal penetration. There wasn't talk about it. And, and indeed, that's part of what I say was the problem with the Court of Appeal is that that's what they wanted. They wanted a discussion about anal penetration, penile anal, pen, anal penetration. That's what they said in their paragraph 43. Of the Court of Appeal decision where they say in the last sentence of that paragraph quite the opposite He admitted there was no discussion of anal intercourse, and that's what the accused said on the stand. No, we didn't talk about it But I believed That the complainant Was telling me and these are my words not his was telling me that that would be agreeable to her Because of all these other things that had happened prior and were in my head
2: You started by talking about how uh, the approach to the defense of the court of appeal is so narrow that it negatives the defense. I guess there's a risk that if the defense is as broad as you've suggested, it makes the defense available basically in every single case where there's some prior sexual activity and somebody says, well, I formed a legitimate expectation for my perception based on what we did in the past. So there is a bit of a danger of blowing open the door to wide as well, in addition to shutting it. And I guess, relatedly, um, it's not just that, it's also the other uh, evidence that that suggested that Mr Hay didn't really understand what consent was about, because he thought it was about going with the flow, and I think she'll like this, and that suggested that he didn't really understand what consent was, because that's what he thought it was about. Well, she... uh, So, how do you...
0: Yes, um, thank you, Justice, and there are a few things that um, you raised there. The first is that uh, there, of course, is a danger in the pendulum swinging too far the other direction, but the number of times that this honorable court has said we need to protect the morally innocent that means that this defense has to be given some latitude, and it, can't, it, can't, it cannot be as strict as the Court of Appeal says that there would need to be discussion about the incident, the act, the sexual act, because if there's a discussion, then it's, we're not even in a mistaken belief. So they've taken an approach that would be virtually impossible. But, the, but in terms of what my client said and some of the, some of the words that he said, um, you know there was an expression that he used to go with the flow or something along that line what was really interesting to me was that the complainant described it that way herself when she was asked in chief how, was, how did it, the evening progress in terms of sexual activity and it was something like you know we went with the flow and, and that seems to make perfect sense but the trial judge and just by the way, I know that um, there isn 't for instance the um, the expression that um, you cannot test the waters uh, and you know what was interesting for me when I read that again in in Barton it just as I looked at it the other day, there was something about it that I realized that i hadn 't actually noticed before and um, this is at Barton in paragraph 107, where Justice Muldaver says that, accordingly, an accused attempt to, quote, test the waters, end quote, but he added something else to it. By recklessly or knowingly engaging in non-consensual sexual touching cannot be considered a reasonable step. And then he adds, this is particularly acute issue in the context of unconscious or semi-conscious complainant. So, so it seems to me as I read it that Justice Moldaver added modifiers to the test the waters. And that is that the, the testing, I guess, has to be recklessly or knowingly engaging in non-consensual sexual activity because the person is passed out, for example.
4: So. The test, the waters comes from you and Chuck, I think, and Justice right. Major, and and um, and and it it occurs after in a series of escalating um, sexual touching, um, and I think that, but isn't that just the nature, though, of, of something that's that's reckless, um, is that um, you can go with the flow until you change the nature the the sexual activity in question in which case if you proceed without consent you are running the risk that the person isn't consenting unless you have that conversation i mean it, it isn't that kind of where we are um in terms of, of what the law says about testing the waters and what recklessness is in this conduct in this context as he's changing uh what he's doing
0: I know my time is up, may I answer, yes, (laughs) thank you. Um, um, Justice Jamal, I I would say this to answer the end of, um, to answer the end of my, give you the end of my response to your question, and that is that the trial judge addressed Mr. Hayes' expressions, Um, you know, go with the flow and those types of things, and she did that in paragraphs uh, 104, through 107, perhaps 108, where she answers it by saying look, he used language that most people would use when saying this is why I believed I had consent, and then she she hearkens to what Justice Moldaver said in Barton about it, about this inquiry being um, that she needs to apply a purposive and contextual approach to the facts. That was in 107. Justice Martin if I could answer uh, your question the the answer i believe lies in the fact that there does not have to be and I, I apologize for repeating this explicit consent that someone if if it's so if it if the law is so narrow that for every next act we need explicit consent. Um, I, I, I would just imagine that there are innumerable sexual assaults every day between consenting partners because there, there may be a second sexual act taken without any discussion about it at all. But it would seem to be a, a natural progression and as I wrote in the, the factum wouldn't that create almost an impossible situation for uh, people engaging in sexual activity if for every different act that there needs to be this, this discussion about, and I use that word broadly, discussion about going to the next act.
1: All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Ms. Rideout.
7: Justice, Justices, I hope to split my submissions into two uh, sections this morning. I'll first address section 276 and the trial judge's ward air ruling with respect to the other sexual activity. And then I'll address the honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent defense and whether it had an air of reality in this case. It is the respondent's position that the Court of Appeal correctly determined that the trial judge erred in admitting evidence of the complainant's previous sexual activity in this case. The appellant failed to satisfy the relevance requirement in section 276, subsection two. The trial judge found that this evidence met the requirement in relation to the defense of honest but mistaken belief communicated consent, but it did not for two reasons. First, there was no evidence of the required belief uh, for that defense, and secondly, the evidence of the appellant's actual belief engaged mistakes of law and twin myth reasoning. This court has confirmed a number of principles in relation to Section 276 throughout the years that are relevant to the determination of this uh, issue. Section 276 hearings are meant to subject the admissibility and permissible uses of evidence of prior sexual history to rigorous scrutiny. Yep.
5: Now, you said the magic words permissible uses. Yes. Because even if evidence is admitted, but it does not materially affect the result, it seems to me that's of relatively little consequence. However, if evidence is admitted, which was inadmissible, and it is material to the result, then you have a different situation. So I guess I'm... I don't want to dance in the head of a pin, but it isn't merely the admissibility, the the admission of the evidence, it is the fact that it was admitted and it was used for an impermissible purpose.
7: Yes, but I would certainly say that in this particular particular case, Justice Rowe, that again, that the the appellant failed to meet um, the requirement for admissibility because he failed to propose a use of that evidence that didn't invoke Twin Myth reasoning. such evidence obviously may be relevant to that defense. However, it requires that defense contemporaneous, affirmatively communicated consent to each and every sexual act. I guess,
3: I mean, it raises the issue of why you're dealing with this as two separate points because the only relevance under 276 for the trial judge related to to this defense, and if it had no air of reality, it can't be relevant to that defense so
7: I don't disagree you'll,
3: you'll argue it however yeah you see I, fit, I don't but... disagree
7: in my respectful submission though starting with this ground it shows where the trial judge began to commit her errors and they were errors that started with respect to the voir dire and then they continued on and were um, repeated in the trial proper by the conclusion of the this evidence so uh, I think the fact that this evidence was admitted and ought not to have been is an important consideration here, even though at the end of the day, I don't disagree, that the issue was whether this defense had an error of reality, and the respondents, respondents' position is that it didn't.
5: Right, but to pick up on Justice Carrick yes. 276 does not say, as the previous uh, legislative provision, which was struck down in Seaboyer, yes. said, you just can't admit this evidence. It said that there's very limited circumstances under which you can admit this evidence, and and, and, and there was a a clearly identified uh, circumstance in which the evidence should not be admitted, which was the ordinary situation. Ordinarily, you don't let it in. So I'm I'm kind of thinking along the lines, perhaps, of Justice Karakasannis, that whether or not there was an error under 276 really depends on whether there was an error of reality because an argument might be made that, that the evidence was properly considered if there was an error of reality, but if there was no error of reality, you just never get to 276, but uh, you know.
7: Yes, well certainly in this case, I mean the judge had to consider whether there was the necessary um, Foundation for that defense at two different stages being a judge alone trial So obviously, I mean she considers at first the elements with respect to her pretrial ruling on The voir dire in terms of whether or not the necessary elements were there to admit that evidence and the the properly identified purpose Uh, and then having ruled it in then she has to conduct or she proceeds to conduct uh, an analysis of the defense and whether there's an error of reality to it at the conclusion of the trial when the when the appellant has testified. So there's two different stages in here but my respectful submission the error started that very first stage because and I'll talk about the the appellant's um, evidence uh, and his belief that's disclosed at both stages is consistent. It's not a belief that the complainant was affirmatively and contemporaneously communicated, communicating uh, consent to anal intercourse it was a belief that she might or that she was likely to based upon primarily her reaction to digital anal penetration so that was the evidence in the voir dire from which she made her ruling and then that was also the appellant's evidence in the trial proper from which she determined that there was an error of relative to the defense and but if we if we read um, uh, judge pepper's um judgment
4: uh, there there's isn't it focused not on the twin myths impermissible uh, that there's a propensity to consent or you're more likely to have consented in this instance, but it's the how point how you've communicated consent right and and she does you know she lifts and she says to establish how the parties communicated consent to each right. other in those, in, in those instances. So isn't that um, of a very different character of a 276 and for a different purpose, where relevance is established by the word communicate as opposed to consent?
7: Yes, and I think what's important, though, in the circumstances of this case is exactly what was the appellant's evidence with respect to that issue, with respect to how... Um, uh, how he formed whatever belief he he purported that he had. Uh, the evidence from him, the only evidence in the voir ear was that he was engaging in vaginal intercourse, an entirely different sexual activity, from behind the complainant when his penis fell out of her vagina. This is his evidence. He immediately grabbed it with his hand and penetrated her anus. He gave her no advance warning that he was about to engage in this activity that they had never discussed prior to, uh, and that they'd never even engaged in, let alone, I guess, engaged in. Um, And that given, given their respective positioning at the time, the complainant had no idea. He knew that the complainant had no idea what was about to take place. So the suggestion, the appellant's evidence in its substance and in its words is that I thought she would be amenable to this and I thought she would be amenable based upon one, her reaction previously to digital anal penetration, and the fact that we had communicated consent both verbally and non-verbally on this date and in the past. So in my respectful submission, the Court of Appeal quite rightly concluded that what the trial judge did in this case was mistake or substitute a belief that consent to other um, what the appellant would describe as similar sexual activity, could be substituted for the actual belief that was required. And to open it up here in the way that the trial judge did, I failed to see how it wouldn't be opened in every case for an appellant simply to advance the proposition that we've always communicated consent verbally and non-verbally, and she liked this other activity, and I thought she would enjoy this as well. That was solely grounded in, in my respectful submission, Twin Myth Reasoning. mistakes of law and that cannot be used as the foundation to establish relevance to this defense or to section 276 sub 2 i hope i've answered that question Uh, i won't belabor the 276 Um, my learned friend did refer to um justice larue dubay's a comment from park that she had made that's often quoted by this court in its subsequent jurisprudence And I would like to as well because she indicated at paragraph 44 of that judgment that circumstances are not relevant to the defense where they are only capable of supporting a belief that the complainant would consent rather than capable of supporting his belief that she does in fact consent. Uh, That's exactly what happened in this particular case in my respectful submission. And as this court noted in Barton, and this quote, I won't quote it verbatim, but it's at paragraph 118, uh, a belief that prior similar sexual activities between an accused and a complainant, or the accused's own speculation about what is going through the complainant's mind, could be substituted for communicated consent to the sexual activity in question at the time it occurs, is a mistake of law. As a matter of law, consent must be specifically renewed and communicated for each and every sexual act. The court, uh, another area I wish to address before I move on from this section 276, is the appellant took issue with the court of appeals' reference to this decision in uh, this court's decision in Hutchinson, that communication um, to consent of one form of penetration somehow constitutes. Uh, uh, Sorry that consent to one form of penetration constitutes consent to any and all forms of penetration Uh, And he suggests that by that the court erred by referring to this um, Passage from this court because it dealt with the actus reus rather than the honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent defense And in the respondents respectful submission it is relevant to both to both areas to the defense Um, how can it be that the communication of consent to one form of penetration constitutes contemporaneous and affirmative communication of consent to all forms of penetration. Uh, to decide otherwise is quite simply to allow mistakes of law again and prohibited reasoning to Im- impermissibly lay the foundation for the honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent defense. Uh, I think at this point I'll move on to the error of reality issue Justice Rowe and hopefully address some of those um, uh, issues. Uh, Parliament has made it clear as we know through 273.2 that a belief in consent will not be a defense, where it arises from recklessness, where the accused did not take reasonable steps in the circumstances known to him to ascertain that the complainant was consenting to the sexual activity in question, and importantly that there's no evidence that the complainant's voluntary agreement to the activity was affirmatively expressed by words or or actively expressed by conduct. In Barton, this court confirmed at paragraph 121 that an accused wishing to rely on the mistaken belief defense in communicated consent uh, must first demonstrate that it has an error of reality The test is whether there's any evidence upon which a trial, a reasonable trial of fact, acting judicially could find first, that the accused took reasonable steps to ascertain consent, and second, that the accused honestly believed that the complainant communicated consent to that sexual activity. Uh, At the conclusion of this trial, there was no evidence from which a reasonable trial of fact could find either.
5: But isn't it really, doesn't it really pivot on reasonable steps? And if I understand your submission that the the accused in this case simply didn't take any
7: That's correct. He took no steps let alone steps that were objectively reasonable and His evidence again in the trial proper as I indicated really mirrored although maybe even uh, demonstrated further uh, the mistakes of law that he was relying upon and the propensity reasoning i've set those out and i'm not going to go through all of them but some examples of those are in the respondent's condensed book at tab 4 but this accused uh, testified that he believed he had consent to attempt anal intercourse because the complainant seemed receptive to everything they were doing that night and that she had enjoyed digital anal penetration 3 weeks before uh, based on this he believed she would be amenable anal intercourse. He felt his penis and his finger weren't that different so it was not wrong to extrapolate that there would be a reasonable chance that she would enjoy anal intercourse. He believed there are different ways you can assume or imply consent and how do you know until you try. He was of the view that his penis was a digit like his finger, uh, that he decided to go with the flow that she could have had said no to digital penetration, but for her to do this 180, what's the guy to do, was his evidence. According to the appellant, anal intercourse was not a new sexual act, and because she liked her anal region touched, he made the decision to try. Because she enjoyed digital anal penetration, he thought, well, maybe she would enjoy anal intercourse as well. And then uh, one of his um, other comments was that you know he compared it to when we were like kids he said and you try different activities and he describes escalating activities and then he repeats yes
3: we've got a situation where the court of appeal said there was no error of reality an error of law and then accepted the facts as found by the trial judge correct. to determine that in fact there no other verdict but a conviction was appropriate correct so The trial judge made a specific finding of fact that those kinds of statements really didn't represent his real view and that she looked at his evidence globally. And don't we have to assume, don't we just have to accept her statements of fact? So you taking us to the record to point out all of those problematic aspects of his testimony really isn't the issue before us. Well, We've got a finding of fact by the trial judge and taking yes. that at its highest. Is there an error of law? And right. does it justify conviction? So I think that would be helpful, not to okay. retry his no. credibility and what he meant when he said those words.
7: I understand. I would just say that obviously whether something is, has an error of reality in defense is a question of law, which we generally accept the evidence that's offered in support of it as true. So the trial judge accepted, I haven't indicated anything that she didn't um, uh, uh, review, but she concluded from uh, from this that these constituted um, the required belief for the defense and also reasonable steps, or I should say, and or reasonable steps. And whether they in fact did is a question of law. Whether that defense had an error of reality Based on, and and the... the, Sorry, I was referring
3: to the problematic statements in his evidence.
7: Right, right.
3: Which you took us through.
7: Now, I would say, I would add to that that where the Court of Appeal found the trial judge further erred was that, I guess, first of all, not recognizing from his evidence what his actual belief was, right? Which was a belief in uh, that the complainant would or was likely to consent to anal intercourse rather than a belief that she... Affirmatively communicated that by words or conduct to the specific activity at the time it occurred And then they found that she further erred or proceeded to err by constructing this alternative defense for him the one that was actually required uh, based upon uh, Rationalizations of his mistakes of law and which was actually contrary to his actual evidence. So that is in part why I reviewed that. Um, Certainly in her uh, error of reality analysis, she acknowledges that some of his statements are mistakes of law, Uh, but she goes on to say that the appellant believed he had permission to proceed to anal intercourse based on the complainant's words and body language and his conclusion that his finger was not that much different than his penis. And she then determined that there was a line between the complainant's body language and her statement to the appellant's belief that did not engage a mistake of law. Why? Because he didn't believe, base his belief in consent on the fact that she was silent or ambiguous on the subject of anal penetration. Or rather, he read her reaction as a yes. Now, this might be relevant, I guess, potentially, if the issue in question here was whether the complainant consented to digital anal penetration it wasn't relevant to whether or not the complainant uh, communicated consent to anal intercourse because of course there was no evidence that she did on the accused's evidence on the complainant's evidence or in the circumstances that were disclosed. And there's nothing in the trial judge's subsequent findings after she concludes there's an error of reality to that defense in terms of the belief that, again, identify the requisite belief.
5: Uh, I, I mean, perhaps to state the blindingly obvious, but it seems to me that there are two legal questions that the Court of Appeal dealt with, and they had to be dealt with in a certain sequence. Yes. One is, was there an error of reality to the defense having decided as a matter of law there was no uh, air of reality in the defense, and therefore the defense could not be relied upon, could the court then, relying upon the other findings of fact, which were not disturbed by their decision concerning the air of reality in in the defense, relying on the other findings of fact, was there, uh, uh, was it clear, that the only verdict which could be entered was uh, a conviction and 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 the second is, is a different question really from the, from the first but it, it you need the second one in order to get to the result they did yeah.
7: yes and, and I agree I, I think that this case in some ways uh, really does I'm going to move to reasonable steps because I think and that is um, a significant failing or significant flaw in the trial judge's reasoning that the Court of Appeal recognized in this case. Uh, As we indicated earlier, there has to be some evidence of reasonable steps to ascertain consent to the sexual activity in question before that defense has the error of reality. And in this case, Justice Rose, we indicated earlier, There's simply no evidence of steps as the respondent's position, let alone reasonable steps, Uh, nor could there be given his clear and consistent testimony throughout, that he engaged in this activity, in his words, in the heat of the moment, that it was a new activity that was never previously discussed, and that he proceeded without warning in circumstances that the complainant could not know what was about to happen. There's no evidence of reasonable steps in that evidence. When the appellant was asked to identify in submissions, uh, what reasonable steps had taken place, none were, and that's reproduced in the condensed book of the respondent at tab four. Uh, The trial judge's findings, just to go back to his identification of reasonable steps, there was basically four. that This was not their first sexual encounter and it wasn't out of the blue that the complainant specifically indicated her consent or agreement three weeks before to digital anal penetration, that their sexual activity was a progression that went along in a natural and normal fashion, and that the sexual activity progressed that way on September 13th with the complainant expressing pleasure to digital anal penetration, penetration leading him to believe she was agreeable to anal intercourse. How has any one of these identified Steps, so-called steps, in the submissions of the appellant, how do any of these constitute constitute a reasonable step by this appellant to ascertain, in the circumstances that were known to him, this complainant's consent to anal intercourse, a new and, in my respectful submission, more intrusive sexual activity than what they had engaged in. Now, the trial judge. Why? First of all, I would say that my my answer to that would be that um, they did not and they could not. Uh, The trial judge uh, found that the appellant had taken reasonable steps to obtain consent based on three things. He engaged in digital anal penetration and received enthusiastic support for it. He thought the complainant would want it or would enjoy it and believed it was not markedly different than the use of his finger and he stopped the activity the moment he realized it wasn't wanted. Again, how is any one of these factors a step to ascertain this complainant's consent to anal intercourse, let alone a reasonable step? Interestingly and significantly in my respectful submission, the trial judge confirmed that she would not have made this finding of reasonable steps. In other words, uh, this defense would not have been available had the appellant inserted a different object into the the complainant's anus. And she makes that finding at paragraph 120 of her judgment. Uh, There is no principle to reason to distinguish between a penis and some other object in this particular case. The trial judge appeared to recognize that penetration with an object other than a finger was a different sexual activity from penetration with a finger. She ought to have applied that same analysis to the penis that was inserted in my respectful submission. Uh, at the end of the day, the absence of reasonable steps in this case deprived the defense of an error of reality and rendered it unavailable pursuant to section 273.2. The court appeal correctly determined That none of the factors that the trial judge identified were reasonable steps and my respectful submission properly set aside the acquittal and entered a conviction in this particular case And Subject to any questions from the panel those would be my submissions.
1: Thank you very much Reply mr. Durr
0: The reasonable steps requirement, in my respectful submission, prevents recklessness, and that would address something that Justice Martin had asked me about earlier. But the air of reality test is low. It is just simply is there any evidence or some evidence that could form a reasonable doubt, and the in my respectful submission, the error of the Court of Appeal was that they turned the error of reality test into a substantive evaluation of the merits of the defense. Contrary to what this Court said in Uwenschek, I'm sorry, Chuck at um, paragraph 57, that the error of reality review by a Court of Appeal should not turn into a substantive evaluation of the merits. Once, and the trial judge determined there was an error of reality, and if that is accepted, then the reasonable steps that followed is a question of fact for the trial judge that the Court of Appeal, um, that is beyond the purview of the Court of Appeal. And that's from Chuck at paragraph 60. So it's a question of fact for the trial judge. My friend referred to paragraph 118 from from Barton, and I and I wonder if paragraph 118 can be taken in the way that my learned friend suggests, based on the facts in Barton, which was that the prior sexual act they were talking about was from the day prior. Whereas here, we are talking about sexual acts occurring within minutes at the the very time it is the sexual act that we are dealing with is part of what was happening that very day so there's a a difference in timing uh, between the two And, and finally I would say this that in my respectful submission the prosecution's position is that explicit consent is required for each new act and as I indicated earlier It's not that explicit consent is required. Certainly there has to be communicated consent for the mistaken belief defense, but it does not necessarily have to be explicit. Thank
1: you very much, Chief Justice. Thank you very much. I would ask the attorneys to remain at our disposal. that cool thank you please be seated so I'd like to thank councils for uh, your submissions your best efforts uh, the court is now ready to release its decision. Mr. Hay appeals from the unanimous decision of the Court of Appeal of Alberta, setting aside an acquittal and substituting a conviction on one count of sexual assault pursuant to Section 686 4 b of the criminal code. We are all of the view that the appeal should be dismissed substantially for the reasons of the Court of Appeal. The appellant's defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent had no air of reality, and the evidence of prior sexual activity was inadmissible. In the circumstances, the Court of Appeal properly substituted a conviction. Therefore, the appeal is dismissed. Thank you.